the sinfulness and care of thoughts, evil thoughts. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Genesis 6, 5. I know no more fitting description in the whole book of God of the natural corruption derived from our first parents than these words, in which you have the ground of that grief which lay so close to God's heart, verse 6, and the resolution to destroy man and whatever was serviceable to that ungrateful creature. That must be highly offensive, which moved God to repent of a fabric so pleasing to him at the creation, every stone in the building being at the first lane pronounced good by him. Him, and upon a review at the finishing of the whole, he left the same character with an emphasis. Very good. Genesis 1, 31. There was not a part in the whole frame, but was very beautiful, and being wrought by infinite wisdom, it was a very comely piece of art. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11. What then should provoke him to repent of it so excellent a work? The wickedness of man, which was great in the earth. How came it to pass that man's wickedness should rise so high? Whence did it spring? From the imagination. Though these might be sinful imaginations, might not the superior faculty preserve itself untainted? Alas, that was defiled. The imagination of the thoughts was evil. But though transient thoughts might resolve in his mind, yet they might leave no stamp or impression upon the will and affections. Yes, they did. The imagination of the thoughts of his heart was evil. Surely all could not be under such a blemish. Were there not now and then some pure emotions of the mind? No, not one every imagination. But granting that they were evil, might there not be some fleeting good mixed with them, as a poisonous reptile half something useful? No, only evil. Well, but there might be some intervals of thinking, and though there was no good thought, yet evil ones were not always there. Yes, they were continually, not a moment of time that man was free from them. One would scarce imagine such a mass of internal wickedness, but God has affirmed it, and if any man should deny it, his own heart would give him the lie. Let us now consider the words by themselves. Imagination properly signifies figmentum, from the verb to afflict, press, or form a thing by compression. And thus it is a metaphor taken from a potter's framing a vessel, and extends to whatever is framed inwardly in the heart or outwardly in the work. It is usually taken by the Jews for that fountain of sin within us. Mercer tells us it is always used in an evil sense. But there are two places, if no more, wherein it is taken in a good sense, whose mind is stayed, Isaiah 26, 3, and 1 Chronicles 29, 18, where David prays that a disposition to offer willingly to the Lord might be preserved in the imagination of the thoughts of the heart of the people. Indeed, for the most part, it is taken for the imaginations of the heart, as Deuteronomy 31, 21, Psalm 103, 14, and so on. This word, imagination, being joined with thoughts, implies not only the complete thoughts, but the first motion or formation of them to be evil. 
The word heart is taken variously in Scripture. It signifies properly that inward member which is the seat of vital spirits, but sometimes it signifies one, the understanding in mind. With a double heart do they speak. Psalm 12, 2, i.e., with a double mind. Proverbs 8, 5. Number 2, for the will. All that is in my heart, Second Kings 10.30, in my will and purpose. Number three, for the affections as, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, i.e., with all thy affections. Number four, for conscience. David's heart smote him, First Samuel 24, i.e., his conscience checked him. But heart here is used for the whole soul, because the soul is chiefly seated in the heart, especially the will, and the affections her attendance, because when any affection stirs, the chief motion of it is felt in the heart. So that by the imaginations of the thoughts of the heart are here meant all the inward operations of the soul, which play their part principally in the heart, whether they be the acts of understanding, the resolutions of the will, or the operations of the affections. Continually evil. The Hebrew all the day or every day, some translations express it verbatim as a Hebrew, not a moment of a man's life in which our hereditary corruption does not belch out its froth, even from his youth, as God expounds it, Genesis 8.21, to the end of his life. David complains of the wickedness of his own time, Psalm 14 and 3, yet Paul applies it to all mankind, Romans 3.12. Indeed, it seems to be a description of man's natural depravity by God's words after the deluge, Genesis 8.21, which are the same in sense to show that man's nature after that destroying judgment was no better than before. Every word is emphatic, exaggerating man's defilement, wherein consider the universality, number one, of the subject, every man, of the act, every thought, of the qualification of the act, only evil, of the time, continually. The words thus opened afford us this proposition, that the thoughts and inward operations of the souls of men are naturally, universally evil and highly provoking. Some by cogitation mean not only the acts of the understanding, but those of the will, yea, in the sense too. But indeed, that which we call cogitation or thought is a work of the mind, imagination of the fancy. It is not properly thought till it be wrought by the understanding, because the fancy was not a power designed for thinking, but only to receive the images impressed upon the sense and concoct them, that they might be fit matter for thought. And so it is the exchequer, wherein all the acquisitions of sense are deposited, and from thence received by the intellective faculty. So that thoughts are inchoative in the fancy, consummative in the understanding, terminative in all the other faculties. Thought first engenders opinion in the mind, thought spurs the will to consent or dissent, it is thought also which spirits the affections. 
I will not spend time to acquaint you with the methods of their generation. Every man knows he has a thinking faculty and some inward conceptions which he calls thoughts. He knows that he thinks and what he thinks, though he be not able to describe the manner of their formation in the mind or remember it any more than the species of his own face in a glass. In this discourse, let us first see what kind of thoughts are sins. One, negatively, a simple apprehension of sin is not sinful. Thoughts receive not a sinfulness barely from the object. That may be unlawful to be acted, which is not unlawful to be thought of. Though the will cannot will sin without guilt, yet the understanding may apprehend sin without guilt, for that does no more contract a pollution by the bare apprehension than the eye does by the reception of the species of a loathsome object. Thoughts are morally evil when they have a bad principle, want a due end, and converse with the object in a wrong manner. Angels cannot but understand the offense which displace the apostate stars from heaven, but they know not sin from practical knowledge. Glorified saints may consider their former sins to enhance their admirations of pardoning mercy. Christ himself must needs understand the matter of the devil's temptation, yet Satan's suggestions to his thoughts were as putrid vapors mixed with the sunbeams without any defilement of them. Yea, God himself, who is infinite purity, knows the object of his own acts, which are conversant about sin, as his holiness in forbidding it, wisdom in permitting, mercy in pardoning, and justice in punishing. But thoughts of sin in Christ, angels, and glorified saints are accompanied with an abhorrence of it, without any combustible matter in them to be kindled by it. As our thoughts of a divine object are not gracious unless we love and delight in it, so a bare apprehension of sin is not positively criminal unless we delight in the object apprehended. As a sinful object does not render our thoughts evil, so a divine object does not render them good, because we may think of it with undue circumstances as unseasonably and coldly. And thus there is an imperfection in the best thought of a regenerate man, for though I will suppose he may have sudden ejaculations without the mixture of any positive impurity and a simple apprehension of sin with a detestation of it, yet there is a defect in each of them because it is not with that raised affection to God or intense abhorrence of sin as is due from us to such objects and whereof we are capable in our primitive state." Number two, positively, our thoughts may be branched into first motions or such that are more voluntary. A. First motions are unfledged thoughts in single threads before a multitude of them come to be united and woven into a discourse, such as skip up from our natural corruption and sink down again as fish in a river. These are sins, though we consent not to them, because, though they are without our will, they are not against our nature, but spring from an inordinate frame of a different hue from what God implanted in us. How can the first sprouts be good if the root be evil? Not only the thought form, but the very formation or first imagination is evil. Voluntariness is not necessary to the essence of a sin, though it be to the aggravation of it. 
It is not my will or knowledge which makes an act sinful, but God's prohibition. Lot's incest was not ushered by any deliberate consent of his will. Yet who will deny it to be a sin, since he should have exercised a severe command over himself than to be overtaken with drunkenness, which was the occasion of it? Genesis 19:33 and 35. Original sin is not effective voluntary in infants because no act of the will is exerted in an infant about it, yet it is voluntary subjective because it does exist in the will. These motions may be said to be voluntary negatively because the will does not set bounds to them and exercise that sovereign dominion over the operations of the soul which it ought to do and wherewith it was at its first creation invested. Besides, though the will does not immediately consent to them, yet it consents to the occasions which administer such motions, and therefore they may be justly charged upon our score. b. Voluntary thoughts, which are the blossoms of these motions, are such that have no lawful object, no right end, not governed by reason, eccentric, disorderly in their motions, and like the jarring strings of an untuned instrument. The smallest of these floating fancies are sins, because we act not in the production of them as rational creatures, and what we do without reason we do against the law of our creation, which appointed reason for our guide, and the understanding to be the governing power in our souls. These thoughts be brought down to three heads. Number one, in regard of God. Number two, of ourselves. Number three, of others. Number one, in regard of God. Cold thoughts of God, when no affection is raised in us by them, when we delight not in God, the object of those thoughts, but in the thought itself, an operation of our mind about Him, consisting in some quaint notion of God of our own conceiving. This is the delight in the act of manner of thinking, not in the object thought of. And thus these thoughts have a folly and vanity in them. They are also sinful in a regenerate man, in respect of the faintness of the understanding, not acting with that vigor and sprightliness, nor with those raised and spiritual affections which the worth of such an object requires. Number two, debasing conceptions unworthy of God. Such are called in the heathen vain imaginations, who, as they glorified not God as God, so they did not think of God as God, according to the dignity of a deity. Such a mental idolatry may be found in us when we dress up a God according to our own humors, humanize him, and ascribe to him what is grateful to us, though never so base which is a grosser degrading of the deity than any representation of him by the material images, because it is directly against his holiness, which is his glory, applauded chiefly by the angels, and an attribute which he swears by is having the greatest regard to the honor of it. Such an imagination Adam seemed to have, conceiving God to be so mean a being that he, a creature not of a day's standing, could mount to an equality of knowledge with him. Number three, accusing thoughts of God, either of his mercy, as in despair, or of his justice, as too severe, as in Cain, Genesis 4.13.
of his providence. Adam conceived, yea, and charged God's providence to be an occasion of his crime. His posterity are no juster to God when they accuse him as a negligent governor of the world. The Lord knoweth the thoughts of man, that they are vanity. Psalm 94, 11. What thoughts? Injurious thoughts of his providence. Verse 7. As though God were ignorant of men's actions, or at best but an idle spectator of all the unrighteousness done in the world, not to regard it, though he saw it. And they and the prophet were of the same stamp, that said in their hearts, The Lord will not do good, neither will he do evil. Zephaniah 1.12 from such kind of thoughts, most of the injuries from oppressors and murmurings in the oppressed do arise. Number four, curious thoughts about things too high for us. It is the frequent business of men's minds to flutter about things outside the bounds of God's revelation. Not to be content with what God has published is to accuse him, in the same manner as the serpent did to our first parents, of envying us an intellectual happiness. It how to all Adam's posterity long after this forbidden fruit. Section 2. In regard of ourselves, our thoughts are, one, ambitious. The aspiring thought of the first man runs in the veins of his posterity. God took notice of such strains in the king of Babylon when he said in his heart, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Isaiah 14, verse 13 and 14. No less a charge will they stand under that settle themselves upon their own bottom, establish their own righteousness, and will not submit to the righteousness of God's appointment. Romans 10, 3. The most forlorn beggar has sometimes thought fast enough to grasp an empire. Number two, self-confident. Edom's thoughts swelled him into vain confidence of a perpetual prosperity, Obadiah 3. And David sometimes said in the like state that he should never be moved. Number three, self-applauding, either in the vain remembrances of our former prosperity or ascribing our present happiness to the dexterity of our own wit. Such flaunting thoughts had Nebuchadnezzar at the consideration of a settling Babylon, the head and metropolis of so great an empire. Daniel 4.30 Nothing more ordinary among men than haughty reflection upon their own parts and thinking of themselves above what they ought to think. Number four, ungrounded imaginations of the events of things, either present or future. Such wild ideas like meteors, bred of a few vapors, do often frisk in our minds. One, of things present. It is like Eve, who foolishly imagined she had brought forth a Messiah, when she had brought forth a murderer. I have gotten a man, the Lord. Genesis 4, 1. As in the Hebrew, believing, as some interpret, that she had brought forth the promised seed. And such an idea, Lamech seems to have had of Noah, Genesis 5.29. Number two, of things to come, either informing false hopes or anticipating improbable griefs. Such are the sanguine thoughts we have of a happy estate in store, which yet we may fall short of. Haman's heart leaped at the king's question, What shall be done to the man whom the king delighteth to honor? 
fancying himself the mark of his prince's favor without thinking that a halter should soon terminate his ambition. Or perplexing thoughts, it the fear of some trouble which is not yet fallen upon us, and perhaps never may. How did David torture his soul by his unbelieving fears that he should one day perish by the hand of Saul, First Samuel 27.1? These forestalling thoughts do really affect us. We often feel perturbation in our spirits upon imaginary hopes and concocted fears. These pleasing impostures and self-afflicting suppositions are signs either of an idle or indigent mind that has no will to work, or only rotten materials to work upon. Number five, a moderate thoughts about lawful things when we exercise our minds too thick and with a fierceness of affection above their merit, not in subserviency to God or mixing our cares with dependence on Him. Worldly concerns may quarter in our thoughts, but they must not possess all the room and thrust Christ again into a manger. Neither must they be of that value with us as the law was with David, sweeter than the honey or the honeycomb. Section 3. In regard of others, all thoughts of our neighbor against the rule of charity, such that imagine evil in their hearts, God hates, Zechariah 8.17. These principally are, one, envious, when we torment ourselves with others' fortunes. Such a thought in Cain upon God's acceptance of his brother's sacrifice was a prologue to and foundation of the cursed murder. Number two, censorious, stigmatizing every freckle in our brother's conduct. Number three, jealous and evil surmises, contrary to charity which thinks no evil. Number four, revengeful. Such made Haman take little content in his preferments as long as Mordecai refused to court him. And Esau thought of the days of mourning for his father, that he might be revenged for his brother's deceits. There is no sin committed in the world, but is hatched in one or other of these thoughts. But besides these, there are a multitude of other volatile ideas, like swarms of gnats buzzing about us and preying upon us, and as frequent in their successions as the curlings of the water upon a small breath of wind, one following another close at its heels. The mind is no more satisfied with thoughts than the first matter is with forms, continually shifting one for another another, and many times the nobler for the baser, as when, upon the putrefaction of a human body, part of the matter is endued with a form of vermin. Such changeable things are our minds, and leaving that which is good for that which is worse, when they are inveigled by an active fancy and bedlam affections. This madness is in the hearts of men while they live, and starts a thousand frenzies in a day. At the best, our fancy is like a postman's bag, stuffed with a world of letters, having no dependence upon one another, some containing business and others nothing but froth. In all these thoughts, there is a further guilt in three respects. One, delight. Two, contrivance. Three, reacting. Number one, delight in them. The very tickling of our fancy by a sinful motion, though without a formal consent, is a sin, because it is a degree of complacency in an unlawful object. 
when the mind is pleased with the subject of the thought, as it has a tendency to some sensual pleasure, and not simply in the thought itself, as it may enrich the understanding with some degree of knowledge. The thought indeed of an evil thing may be without any delight in the evil of it, as philosophers delight in making experiments of poisonous creatures without delighting in the poison, as it is a noxious quality. We may delightfully think of sin without guilt, not delighting in it as sin, but as God by his wise providential orderings extracts glory to himself and good to his creature. In this case, though a sinful act be the material object of this pleasure, yet it is not the formal object, because the delight is not terminated in the sin, but in God's ordering the event of it to his own glory. But an inclination to a sinful motion, as it gratifies a corrupt affection, is sin, because every inclination is a malignant tincture upon the affections, including in its own nature an aversion from God, and testifying sin to be an agreeable object. And without question, there can be no inclination to anything without some degree of pleasure in it, because it is impossible we can incline to that of which we have a perfect abhorrence. Hence it follows that every inclination to a sinful motion is a consent in embryo, though the act may prove abortive. If we think of any unlawful thing with pleasure, and imagine it either in possibility or in act, it brings a guilt upon us as if it were really acted. And when upon the consideration of such a man's being my enemy, I fancy robbers rifling his goods and cutting his throat, and rejoice in this revengeful thought, as if it were really done, it is a great sin, because it testifies an approbation of such barbarity, if any man had will and opportunity to commit it. And though it be a supposition, yet the act of the mind is really the same as it would be if the sinful act I think of were performed." or when a man conditionally thinks with himself, I would steal such a man's goods or kill such a person if I could escape the punishment attending it. It is as if he had robbed and murdered him, because there is no impediment in his will to the commission of it, but only in the outward circumstances. Nay, though it be merely the object of the thought, yet the act of the mind is real, and as significant of the inclination of the soul, as if the object were real too, as if a man has an unclean motion at the sight of a picture, which is only a composition of well-mixed and well-ordered colors, or at the appearance of the idea of a beauty framed in his own fancy. It is as much uncleanness as if it were terminated in some suitable object, the hindrance being not in the will, but in the insufficiency of the object to concur in such an act. Now, as the more delight there is in any holy service, the more precious it is in itself, and more grateful to God. So the more pleasure there is in any sinful motion, the more malignity there is in it. Number 2. Contrivance when the delight in the thought grows up to the contrivance of the act, which is still the work of the thinking faculty, when the mind brooks up a sinful motion to hatch it up, and invents methods for performance, which the wise man calls artificial inventions, Ecclesiastes 7.29, so a learned man interprets, Matthew 15.19, of contrivances of murder, adultery, and so on. And the word signifies properly reasonings. 
when men's wits act to satanic part in their souls in inventing sophistical reasons for the commission and justification of their crimes with a mighty jollity at their own craft. Such plots are the trade of a wicked man's heart. A covetous man will be working from morning till night to study new methods for gain, and voluptuous and ambitious persons will draw schemes and models in their fancy of what they would outwardly accomplish. They conceive mischief and bring forth vanity, and their belly prepares deceit. Job 15.35 Hence, the thoughts are called the counsels, 1 Corinthians 4.5, and devices, Isaiah 32.7 and 8, of the heart. When the heart summons the head and all the thoughts of it to sit and debate as a private junto about a sinful motion. Number 3. Reacting sin after it is outwardly committed. Though the individual action be transient and cannot be committed again, yet the idea and image of it remaining in the memory may, by the help of an apish fancy, be repeated a thousand times over with a rarefied pleasure, as both the features of our friends and agreeable conversations we have had with them may with a fresh relish be represented in our fancies, though the persons died many years ago. Having thus declared the nature of our thoughts and the degrees of their guilt, the next thing is to prove that they are sins. The Jews did not acknowledge them to be sins unless they were blasphemous and immediately against God himself. Some heathens were more orthodox, and among the rest Ovid, whose amorous pleasures, one would think, should have smothered such sentiments in him. The Lord, whose knowledge is infallible, knows the thoughts of men that they are vanity. Psalm 94.11 Yes, and of the wisest men too, according to the apostles' interpretation. 1 Corinthians 3.20 and who were they that became vain in their imaginations, but the wisest men the carnal world yielded? The Grecians, the great philosophers, the Egyptians, their tutors, and the Romans, their apes. The elaborate operations of an unregenerate mind are fleshy. Romans 8, 5, and 7. If the whole web be so, needs must every thread. The thought of foolishness is sin, i.e., a foolish thought, not objectively a thought of folly, but one formally so, yes, an abomination to God. As good thoughts and purposes are acts in God's account, so are bad ones. Abraham's intention to offer Isaac is accounted as an actual sacrifice, Hebrews 11.17, that the stroke was not given, was not from any reluctance of Abraham's will, but the gracious indulgence of God. Sarah had a deriding thought, and God charges it as if it were an outward laughter and a scornful word. Thoughts are the words of the mind, and as real in God's account as if they were expressed with the tongue. There are three reasons for the proof of this that they are sins. Number one, they are contrary to the law, which forbids the first foamings and belchings of the heart, because they rise from an habitual corruption, and testify a defect of something which the law requires to be in us, to correct the excursions of our minds. Does not the law oblige man as a rational creature? 
Shall it then leave that part which constitutes him rational to fleeting and giddy fancies? No, it binds the soul as the principal agent, the body only as the instrument. For if it were given only for the sensitive part, without any respect to the rational, it would concern brutes as well as men, which are as capable of a rational command and of voluntary obedience as men without the conduct of a rational soul. It exacts a conformity of the whole man to God, and prohibits a deformity, and therefore engages chiefly the inward part, which is most the man. It must, then, extend to all the acts of the man, consequently to his thoughts, they being more the acts of the man than the motions of the body. Holiness is the prime excellency of the law, a title ascribed to it twice in one verse. Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, just, and good. Romans 7.12 Could it be holy if it indulged looseness in the more noble part of the creature? Could it be just if it favored inward unrighteousness? Could it be good and useful to man which did not enjoin a suitable conformity to God, wherein the creature's excellency lies? Can that deserve the title of a spiritual law that should only regulate the brutish part and leave the spiritual to an unbounded licentiousness? Can perfection be ascribed to that law which countenances the unsavory breathings of the spirit and lays no stricter an obligation upon us than the laws of men? Must not God's laws be as suitable to his sovereignty as men's laws are to theirs? Must they not then be as extensive as God's dominion and reach even to the most private closets of the heart? It is not for the honor of God's holiness, righteousness, goodness, to let the spirit, which bears more flourishing characters of his image than the body, range wildly about with a legal curb. Number two, they are contrary to the order of nature and the design of our creation. Whatsoever is a swerving from our primitive nature is sin, or at least a consequence of it. But all inclinations to sin are contrary to that righteousness wherewith man was first endued. Man was created both with a disposition and ability for holy contemplations of God. The first glances of his soul were pure. He came every way complete out of the mint of his infinitely wise and good creator. And when God pronounced all his creatures good, he pronounced man very good amongst the rest. But man is not now as God created him. He is off from his end. His understanding is filled with lightness and vanity. This disorder never proceeded from the God of order. Infinite goodness could never produce such an evil frame. None of these loose inventions were of God's planting, but of man's seeking. No, God never created the intellective, no, nor the sensitive part, to play Domitian's game and sport itself in catching flies. Man that is in honor, and understands not that which he ought to understand, and thinks not that which he ought to think, is like the beasts that perish. Psalm 49.20, Genesis 3.6 he plays the beast because he acts contrary to the nature of a rational and immortal soul, and such brutes we all naturally are, since the first woman believed her sense, her fancy, her affection, and their directions for the attainment of wisdom, without consulting God's law or her own reason. 
The fancy was bound by the right of nature to serve the understanding. It is then a sliding God's wisdom to invert this order, and making that our governor which he made our subject. It is injustice to the dignity of our own souls to degrade the nobler part to a sordid slavery, and making the brute have dominion over the man, as if the horse were fittest to govern the rider. It is a falseness to God and a breach of trust to let our minds be imposed upon by our fancy and given them only feathers to dandle and chaff to feed on instead of those braver objects they were made to converse about. Number three, we are accountable to God and punishable for thoughts. Nothing is the meritorious cause of God's wrath but sin. The text tells us that they were once the keys which opened the floodgates of divine vengeance and broached both the upper and nether cisterns to overflow the world. If they need a pardon, as certainly they do, then, if mercy does not pardon them, justice will condemn them. And it is absolutely said that a man of wicked devices or thoughts God will condemn. Proverbs 12.2 It is God's prerogative, often mentioned in Scripture, to search the heart. To what purpose, if the acts of it did not fall under his censor as well as his cognizance? He weighs the spirits. Proverbs 16.2 In the balance of his sanctuary and by the weights of his law to sentence them if they be found too light. The word uncovers and judges them. It divides asunder the soul and spirit. Hebrews 4, 12, and 13. The sensitive part, the affections, and the rational, the understanding and will, both which it dissects and opens and judges the acts of them, even the thoughts and intents, that it passes judgment upon, as a critic censors of the eratus, even to syllables and letters in an old manuscript. These we are to render an account of, as the Syriac renders those words, with whom we have to do. Verse 13. Of what? Of the first bubblings of the heart, the motions and intents of it. The least speck and atom of dust in every chink of this little world is known and censored by God. If our thoughts be not judged, God would not be a righteous judge. He would not judge according to the merit of the cause. If outward actions were only scanned without regarding the intents, wherein the principles and end of every action lies, which either swell or diminish the malignity of it. Actions in kind the same may have different circumstances in the thoughts to heighten the one above the other. And if they only were judged, the most painted hypocrite might commence a blessed spirit at last, as well as the exactest saint. It is necessary also for the glory of God's omniscience. It is hereby chiefly that the extensiveness of God's knowledge is discovered, and that in order to the praise or dispraise of men, to their justification or condemnation... Those very thoughts will accuse you before God's tribunal, which accuse you here before conscience, his deputy. Their thoughts the meanwhile, i.e. in this life, while conscience bears witness accusing or excusing one another in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men, Romans 2, 15 and 16, i.e. and also at the day of judgment, when conscience shall give in its final testimony upon God's examination of the secret counsels. 
This place is properly meant to those reasonings concerning good and evil in men's consciences, agreeable to the law of nature imprinted on them, which shall excuse them if they practice accordingly, or accuse them if they behave themselves contrary thereunto. But if we hold in this case, for if those inward approbations of the notions of good and evil will accuse us for our contrary practices, they will also accuse us for our contrary thoughts. Our good thoughts will be our accusers for not observing them, and our bad thoughts will be indictments against us for complying with them. It is probable the soul may be bound over to answer chiefly for these at the last day, for the apostle charges Simon's guilt upon his thought, not his word, and tells him pardon must principally be granted for that. The tongue was only an instrument to express what his heart did think, and would have been wholly innocent had not his thoughts been first criminal. What, therefore, is the principal subject of pardon would be so of punishment as the first firebrands in a rebellion are most severely dealt with, and if, as some think, the fallen angels were stripped of their primitive glory only for a conceived thought, how heinous must that be which has enrolled them in a remediless misery? Having proved that there is a sinfulness in our thoughts, let us now see what provocation there is in them, which, in some respects, is greater than that of our actions." But we must take actions here as distinguished from the inward preparations to them. In the one there is more a scandal, in the other more odiousness to God. God indeed does not punish thought so visibly, because as he is the governor of the world, his judgments are shot against those sins that disturb human society. But he has secret and spiritual judgments for these suitable to the nature of the sins. Now thoughts are greater in respect, number one, of fruitfulness. The wickedness that God saw great in the earth was a fruit of imaginations. They are the immediate causes of all sin. No cockatrice but was first an egg. It was a thought to be as God that was the first breeder of all that sin under which the world groans at this day. For his mind was first beguiled in the alteration of her thought. Second Corinthians 11.3 since that the lake of inward malignity acts all its evil by these smoking streams, evil thoughts lead the van in our Savior's catalogue, is that which spirits all the black regiment which march behind. Matthew 15:19. As good motions cherish will spring up in good actions, so loose thoughts favored will break out invisible plague sores and put fire to all that wickedness which lies habitually in the heart, as a spark may to a whole stock of gunpowder. The vain babblings of the soul as well as those of the tongue will increase to more ungodliness. Being thus the cause, they include virtually in them all that is in the effect, as the seed contains in its little body of the leaves, fruit, color, scent, which afterward appear in the plant. The seed includes all, but the color does not virtually include the scent, or the scent, the color, or the leaves, the fruit. So it is here. One act doth not include the formal obliquity of another, but the thought which caused it seminally includes both the formal and final obliquity of every action, both that which is in the nature of it, 
and in the end to which it tends. It when a tradesman cherishes a moderate thoughts of gain, and in attaining it runs into many foolish and hurtful loss, there is cheating, lying, swearing, to sell off the commodity. All these several acts have a particular sinfulness in the nature of the acts themselves. Besides the tendency they have to satisfy an inordinate affection, all which are the spawn of those first immoderate thoughts stirring up greedy desires. Number two, in respect of quantity. Imaginations are said to be continually evil. There is an infinite variety of conceptions, as the psalmist speaks of the sea, wherein are all things creeping innumerable, both small and great, and a constant generation of the whole shoals of them, that you may as well number the fish in the sea, or the atoms in the sunbeams, is count them. There is a greater number, A, in regard of the acts, and B, in regard of the objects. A, in regard of the acts of the mind, antecedent acts. How many preparatory motions of the mind are there to one wicked external act? Yes, how many sinful thoughts are twisted together to produce one deliberate sinful word? All which have a distinct guilt, and if weighed together would outweigh the guilt of the action abstractly considered. How many repeated complacencies in the first motion, degrees of consent, resolved brooding, secret plottings, proposals of various methods, smothering contrary, checks, vehement longings, delightful hopes, and forestalled pleasures in the design, all which are but thoughts assenting or dissenting in order to the act intended. Upon a dissection of all these secret motions by the critical power of the word, we should find a more monstrous guilt than would be apparent in the single action, for whose sake all these spirits were raised. There may be no sin in a material act considered in itself when there is a provoking guilt in the mental motion. A hypocrite's religious services are materially good, but poisoned by the imagination lurking in the heart that gave birth to them. It is the wicked mind or thought that makes the sacrifice much more an abomination to the Lord. Consider their number with reference also to consequent acts. When a man's fancy is pregnant with a delightful remembrance of the sin that is past, he draws down a fresh guilt upon himself, as they did in the prophet Ezekiel 23.3 and 19, in reviving the concurrence of the will to the act committed, making the sensual pleasure to commence spiritual, and if ever there were an aching heart for it, revoking his former grief by a renewed approbation of his darling lust. Thus, the sin of thoughts is greater in regard of duration. A man has neither strength nor opportunity always to act, but he may always think, and imagination can supply the place of action. Or, if the mind be tired with sucking one object, it can, with the bee, presently fasten upon another. Senses are weary till they have a new recruit of spirits, as a poor horse may sink under his burden when the rider is as violent as ever. Thus old men may change their outward profaneness into mental wickedness, and as the psalmist remembered his old song, Psalm 77, 5 and 6, so they their calcin sins in the night with an equal pleasure, so that you see there may be a thousand thoughts as ushers and lack eyes to one act as numerous as the sparks of a new lighted fire. Number 2. 
in regard of the objects the mind is conversant about. Such thoughts there are, and attended with heavy guilt, which cannot probably, no nor possibly, descend into outward acts. A man may, in complacent thought, commit fornication with a woman in Spain, and a covetous thought rob another in the Indies, and in a revengeful thought stab a third in America, and that while he is sitting in a church pew, an unclean person may commit a mental folly with every beauty he meets. A covetous man cannot plunder a whole kingdom, but in one twinkling of a thought he may wish himself the possessor of all the estates in it. A Timon, a man-hater, cannot cut the throats of all the world, but, like Nero, with one glance of his heart he may cut off the heads of all mankind at a blow. An ambitious man's practices are confined to a small spot of land, but with a cast of his mind he may grasp an empire as large as four monarchies. A beggar cannot ascend a throne, but in his thoughts he may pass the guards, murder his prince, and usurp the government. Even further, an atheist may say in his heart, There is no God. Psalm 14.1 I.e. wish there was no God, and thus in thought undeify God himself, though he may sooner dash the heaven and earth in pieces than accomplish it. The body is confined to one object, and that narrow and proportionable to its nature, but the mind can wing itself to various objects in all parts of the earth. Where it finds none, it can make one, for fancy can compact several objects together, coin an image, color a picture, and commit folly with it. When it hath done, it can nestle itself in cobwebs spun out of its bowels. Number three, in respect of strength, the imaginations of the heart are only, i.e., purely evil. The nearer anything is in union with the root, the more radical strength it has. The first ebullitions of light and heat from the sun are more vigorous than the remoter beams, and steam stink most next to the putrefied body than when they are dilated in the air. Grace is stronger in the heart operations than in the outward streams, and sin more foul in the imagination of the thoughts of the heart than in the act. In the text, the outward wickedness of the world is passed over with a short expression, but the Holy Ghost dwells upon the description of the wicked imagination, because there lay the mass. Man's inward part is very wickedness, a whole nest of vipers. Thoughts are the immediate spawn of the original corruption, and therefore partake more of the strength and nature of it. Acts are more distant, being the children of our thoughts, but the grandchildren of our natural depravity. Besides, they lie nearest to that wickedness in the inward part, sucking the breast of that poisonous dam that bred them. The strength of our thought is also reinforced by being kept in for want of opportunity to act them, as liquors in enclosed bottles ferment and increase their sprightliness. Musing, either carnal or spiritual, makes the fire burn the hotter, as a fury of fire is doubled by being pent in a furnace. Outward acts are but the sprouts, the sap and juice lies in the wicked imagination or contrivance, which has strength in it to produce a thousand fruits as poisonous as the former. The members are the instruments or weapons of unrighteousness. Now the whole strength which manages the weapon lies in the arm that wields it. The weapon itself could do no hurt without a force impressed. Let me add this too, that sin in thoughts is more simply 
sin. In acts, there may be some occasional good to others, for a good man will make use of the sight of sin committed by others to increase his hatred of it. But in our sinful thoughts, there is no occasion of good to others. They lie locked up from the view of man. Number four, in respect of alliance. In these we have the nearest communion with Satan. The understanding of man is so tainted that his wisdom, the chiefest flower in it, is not only earthly and sensual, it were well if it were no worse, but devilish too, James 3.15. If the flower be so rank, what are the weeds? Satan's devices and our thoughts are of the same nature and are sometimes in scripture expressed by the same word, 1 Corinthians 2.11, 2 Corinthians 10.5. As he has his devices, so have we against the authority of God's law, the power of the gospel, and the kingdom of Christ. The devils are called spiritual wickedness because they are not capable of carnal sins, Ephesians 6.12. Profaneness is a uniformity with the world, and intellectual sins are a uniformity with the God of it, Ephesians 2, 2 and 3. There is a double walking, answerable to a double pattern in it. Fulfilling the desires of the flesh is a walking according to the course of this world, or making the world our copy, and fulfilling the desires of the mind is a walking according to the prince of the power of the air. Verse 2, or making the devil our pattern. In carnal sin, Satan is a tempter, and mental, and actor. Therefore, in the one we are conformed to his will, in the other we are transformed into his likeness. In outward we evidence more obedience to his laws, in inward more of affection to his person, as all imitations of others do. Therefore, there is more of enmity to God, because more similitude and love to the devil. A nearer approach to the diabolical nature implying a greater distance from the divine. Christ never gave so black a character as that of the devil's children to the profane world, but to the Pharisees, who had left the sins of men to take up those of devils, and were most guilty of those high imaginations which ought to be brought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Number 5. In respect of contrariety and odiousness to God. Imaginations were only evil, and so most directly contrary to God who is only good. Our natural enmity against God is seated in the mind. The sensitive part aims at its own gratification, and in men serving their lusts they serve their pleasures. But the prince in man is possessed with principles of a more direct contrariety, whence it must follow that all the thoughts and counsels of it are tinctured with this hatred. They are indeed a defilement of the higher part of the soul, and that which belongs most peculiarly to God." And the nearer any part approaches to God, the more abominable is a spot upon it, as to cast dirt upon a prince's house is not so heinous as to deface his image. The understanding, the seed of thoughts, is more excellent than the will, both because we know and judge before we will, or ought to will only so much as the understanding thinks fit to be willed, and because God has bestowed the highest gifts upon it, adorning it with more lively lineaments of his own image, renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, Colossians 3.10, implying that there was more of the image of God at the first creation bestowed upon the understanding, the seed of knowledge than on any other part, yea, than on all the bodies of men together. 
father of spirits is one of God's titles to asperse his children then, so near a relation, the jewel that he is choice of must needs be more heinous. He being the father of spirits, the spiritual wickedness of nourishing evil thoughts is a cashiering all childlike conformity to him. The treacherous acts of the mind are most offensive to God, as it is a greater despite for a son to whom the father has given the greater portion to shut him out of his house, only to revel in it with a company of rioters and strumpets, than in a child who never was so much the subject of his father's favor. And it is more heinous and odious if the thoughts which possess our souls be at any time conversant about some idea of our own framing. It were not altogether so bad if we loved something of God's creating, which had a physical goodness and a real usefulness in it, to allure us, but to run wildly to embrace and prefer a thing of no existence but what is colored by our own imagination, of no virtue, no usefulness, a thing that God never created, nor pronounced good, is a great greater enmity and a higher slight of God. Number six, in respect of co-naturalness and voluntariness, they are the imaginations of the thoughts of the heart and they are continually evil. They are as natural as emotions of the sea, the bubblings of the fountain, or the twinklings of the stars. The more natural an emotion is ordinarily, the quicker it is. Time is requisite to action, but thoughts have an instantaneous motion. The body is a heavy piece of clay, but the mind can start out on every occasion. Actions have their stated times and places, but these solicit us and are entertained by us at all seasons. Neither day nor night, street nor one's own room, exchange nor temple can free us from them. We meet them at every turn, and they strike upon our souls as often as light upon our eyes. There is no restraint for them. The laws of men, the constitution of the body, the interest of profit or credit are mighty bars in the way of outward profaneness. But nothing lays a rein upon thoughts but the law of God. And this man is not subject to, neither indeed can be. Romans 8.7 Besides, the natural atheism in man is a special friend and nurse of these. Few firmly believe in either the omniscience of God or his government of the world, which the scripture speaks of frequently as a cause of most sins among the sons of men. Actions are done with some reluctance and checks of natural conscience. Conscience will start at a gross temptation, but it is not frightened at thoughts. Men may commit speculative folly and their conscience look on without so much as a nod against it. Men may tear out their neighbor's hearts and secret wishes, and their conscience never interpose to part the fray. Conscience, indeed, cannot take notice of all of them. They are too subtle in their nature and too quick for the observation of a finite principle. They are many, and they are nimble, too. Like the bubblings of a boiling pot or the rising of a wave that presently slides into its level, the difficulty is more to find than conquer them. They are secret sins and are no more discerned than motes in the air without a spiritual sunbeam. Whence David cries out, Cleanse me from secret sins, Psalm 19.12, which some explain as sins of thought that were like sudden and frequent flashes of lightning, too quick for his notice and unknown to himself. There is also more delight in them, there is less of outward temptation in them, and so more of our inward choice, and consequently there is more of the heart and pleasure in them when they lodge with us. 
access and are troublesome. There is danger as well as pleasure in many of them, but there is no outward danger in thoughts. Therefore, the complacency is more compact and free from distraction. The delight is more unmixed, too, as intellectual pleasures are more refined than sensual. All these considerations will enhance the guilt of these inward operations. The uses I shall make of this subject will be two. One, reproof. What a mass of vanity should we find in our minds if we could bring our thoughts in the space of one day, even only one hour, to account. How many foolish thoughts with our wisdom, ignorant thoughts with our knowledge, worldly thoughts with our heavenliness, hypocritical thoughts with our religion, and proud with our humiliations. Our hearts would be like a grotto furnished with a monstrous and ridiculous picture, or as a wall in Ezekiel's vision portrayed with every form of creeping things and abominable beasts, a greater abomination than the image of jealousy at the outward gate of the altar, Ezekiel 8, 5, and 10. Were our thoughts open, how should we stand gazing both with scorn and wonder at our being such a race of fools? Well, may we cry out with Agar, We have not the understanding of men. Proverbs 32 We make not the use of them, as is requisite for rational creatures, because we degrade them to attendance on a brutish fancy. How little is God in any of our thoughts, according to His excellency? No, our shops, our rents, our temporal interests and gratifications usurp God's room. If any thoughts of God start up in us, how many covetous, ambitious, wanton, revengeful thoughts are jumbled together with them? Is it not a monstrous absurdity to place our friend with a crew of vipers, to lodge a king in a sty, and entertain him with the fumes of a dunghill? A wicked man's heart is little worth. All the peddling wares and works in his inward shop are not to be compared with one silver drop from a gracious man's lips. The tongue of the just is as a choice silver, and so on. Proverbs 10.20 It was an invincible argument of the primitive Christians for the purity of the Christian religion, above all others in the world, that it prohibited evil thoughts. And is it not as unanswerable an argument that we are no Christians if we give liberty to them? What is our moral way of living outwardly, but only a bare abstinence from sin? Were we really and altogether Christians, would not that which is the chiefest purity of Christianity be our pleasure? And would we any more wrong God in our secret hearts than in the open streets? Is not thought a beam of the mind, and shall it be enamored only by that which is vile? Is not the understanding the eye of the soul, and shall it behold only gilded nothings? It is the flower of the spirit, shall we let every caterpillar suck it? It is as the sun in our heaven, and shall we besmear it with misty fancies? It was created surely for better purposes than to catch a thousand weight of spiders, as Heogobulus employed his servants. It was not intended to be made the common sewer of filthiness. Let not therefore our minds wallow in a sink of fantastic follies, whereby to rob God of his due in our souls of happiness. Number 2. Exhortation We must take care for the suppression of them. All vices arise from imagination. Upon what stock does ambition and revenge grow, but upon a false idea of the nature of honor? 
What engenders covetousness but a mistaken fancy of the excellence of wealth? Thoughts must be forsaken as well as our way. We cannot else have an evidence of a true conversion. And if we do not discard them, we are not like to have an abundant pardon. And what will the issue of that be but an abundant punishment? Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and so on. Isaiah 55, 7, Galatians 5, 24. Mortification must extend to these. Affections must be crucified, and all the little brats of thoughts which beget them, or are begotten by them. Shall we nourish that which brought down the wrath of God upon the old world, as though there had not been already sufficient experiments of the mischief they have done? Is it not our highest excellence to be conformed to God in holiness in as full a measure as our finite natures are capable? And is not God holy in his counsels and inward operations as well as in his works? Hath God any thoughts but what are righteous and just? Therefore, the more foolish and vain our imaginations are, the more are we alienated from the life of God. The Gentiles were so because they walked in the vanity of their mind, and we shall be so if vanity walk and dwell in ours. As the tenth commandment forbids all unlawful thoughts and desires, so it obliges us to all thoughts and desires that may make us agreeable to the divine will and like to God himself. We shall find great advantage by suppressing them. We can more easily resist temptations without if we conquer motions within. Thoughts are the mutineers in the soul which set open the gates for Satan. He has held a secret intelligence with them so far as he knows them ever since the fall, and they are his spies to assist him in the execution of his devices. They prepare the tender, and the next fiery dart sets all on a flame. Can we cherish these if we consider that Christ died on account of them? He shed his blood for that which put the world out of order, which was accomplished by the sinful imagination of the first man, and continued by those imaginations mentioned in the text. He died to restore God to his right and man to his happiness, neither of which can be perfectly attained till those be thrown out of the possession of the heart. sinfulness and cure of thoughts. Stephen Charnock is justly renowned for his work on the existence and attributes of God, which are really only the beginning of a body of divinity which he desired to give to the world. The Puritans believed that low views of God were the ultimate cause of all errors and all sins, and that the communication of a true knowledge of the divine character is the supreme purpose of creation and redemption. It meets the sinner's greatest need and should be the foremost theme of the gospel minister. There is nothing under the heavens that the affections of human nature stand more point-blank against than against God. None seeks God as his rule, as his end, as his happiness. Man desires no communion with God. He places his happiness in anything inferior to God. He prefers everything before him, glorifies everything above him, judges God unfit to be conversed with, and cares not whether he has a being in the world or not. The sovereignty of God as a lawgiver is most abhorred by man. As soon as ever it appeared in creation, the devils rebelled against it in heaven, and man would have banished it from earth. This is a great quarrel between God and man, whether he or they shall be the sovereign ruler. The devil attempted to share God's sovereignty and tempted man to share it. Most of the errors of men may be resolved into a denial of God's sovereignty.
Sin unlinks the dependence between God, the sovereign, and man, the subject. Sin endeavors to subject God to the wills of men. God is deposed and man enthroned. God made a slave and man a sovereign above him. Man is always gaining or losing something. The holiness, happiness, and wisdom of saints is capable of increase and diminution. But, if there were any change in God, he would be sometimes what he was not, and he would cease to be what he was. Change implies defect. If God were changeable, he were not infinite and almighty. This work on the sinfulness and cure of thoughts, most of which is here reprinted, was the only work published during his own lifetime, appearing in the supplement to the morning exercises at Cripplegate. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- 450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.